This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Equity Life! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We have one of our favorite expert investors all the way from the US back on to, uh, to help us make sense of what's going on in markets. Yes, very much looking forward to this episode. I think it is the third time that our guest is joining us on the show. And I know our community are also very much looking forward to this one as we've reached out to them to get some questions from them that we can ask as we go through this interview. So we are hoping to do that. Our guest started his career at Bear Stearns, went on to found a a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and now publishes the Felder Report. I guess it is our pleasure to introduce Jesse Felder to the show. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I can't believe it's three times already. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have been kicking now for about four years, so I guess we're not recycling guests, but yeah. um, <laughs> getting some of our favorite back on the show, as we were just discussing offline. I think we really enjoy listening to your, your podcast and also reading the Felder Report. And we wanted just to check in with you at a time like this to really understand from your perspective what is going on. So as I mentioned mentioned in the intro as well, we've got some questions from our community that we'll also be asking as we go. Terrific. Yeah, let's do it. So I guess, Jesse, if we start in a general sense, the last few months have obviously been very turbulent and very outside the norm. And you know we're all recording from our respective houses at the moment. So if we start broad, how, how would you summarize the last couple of months, both in the broader economy and in financial markets? Well, it's been, you know, a fascinating time, really. I, you know, I was, I was writing back in January and February. It was, it was really especially interesting to see a lot of the, the indicators I look at 
throwing up red flags. Obviously, these weren't related to an oncoming pandemic, but they were related to the economy and the stock market. You had a big Dow theory divergence where the Dow Jones Industrial Average was making new highs and the transportation average you know, made its high back in 2018. And so that's usually a kind of an economic red flag that was cropping up. At the same time, you had a lot of those cyclically sensitive sectors in the stock market just really performing poorly, like transportation and retail, metals and mining. These are all kind of red flags that you would look for just beneath the surface. We also had another cluster of uh, Hindenburg omens in February. I think there were seven of them on the New York Stock Exchange in a period of like 10 days. So that's just another sign that breath was really, really poor in the stock market and, and earnings growth was, you know, flattening out. And so there were a bunch of kind of red flags, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned. And at the same time, it was just absolutely fascinating to see stocks like Virgin Galactic, Tesla going totally parabolic and investors diving into the options market like they've never done before. So the, the amount of call buying, investors buying call options to open was something, you know, it was like 50% more than anything we've ever seen before. So there was this kind of speculative euphoric blow off in January and February. And meanwhile, the economy was, was kind of, like I said, throwing up red flags. And so it was this huge dichotomy that you rarely, rarely see where you have this surging euphoria in terms of sentiment, kind of not supported by fundamentals at all. And then at the same time, you know, the, the, this pandemic, you know, you could read about it in, in China and spreading outside of China and, and around the world, and still the stock market didn't care. And so it was, it was fascinating to see all that. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic caught up with the stock market, and we had this crash 30% plus in the S&P 500, you know, the fastest 30% plus decline from an all-time high that we've ever had. So that was, you know, the market trying to reconcile it pricing in a euphoric situation and then having to go to something totally different. And, and so I, I wouldn't say that it's something that, I mean, yes, it's it's been unprecedented, the speed of it and, and the depth of this decline from all-time highs, but we've seen things like this before in, in the 1987 crash, the 1929 crash, you know, the market has a history of rapidly reversing, especially when it gets pushed too high by speculative euphoria. So you mentioned there that we had the fastest sort of bear market in history and now we're seeing, you know, some serious exuberance and, and a pretty quick recovery as well. How are you thinking about the speed of not only us going down but now what's happening going up? I think we woke up this morning and saw that Amazon's now broken new record highs. How are you thinking about that? Well, you know, one of the one of the dynamics that I think behind the crash is a lot of these highly leveraged systematic strategies that are kind of the tail wagging the dog now, you know, the stock market dog. And a lot of it is related to volatility. So whether it's shorting volatility outright or volatility targeting strategies like risk parity or the, these types of things, when volatility is going down, they're leveraging up on the long side and buying. And through a virtuous circle, they, they push volatility down, which makes them buy more. And, you know, that goes on and on until volatility reverses. And then they have to unwind all at once. When volatility is rising, they, they need to sell or cover their volatility shorts or whatever it is. And so so I think the speed of this decline was was partially a product of that, of, you know, volatility targeting strategies and, and short selling of volatility, having to unwind these massive short positions. And now that 
volatility is falling, we could see this working the opposite direction, that these strategies all literally got entirely out of the market. A handful of really good articles that kind of documented this, that that all these strategies had either their zero net long exposure or had gone you know hugely net short the stock market as of three weeks ago. And so there really wasn't much left in that space to unwind and push stock prices lower. But now that they're all short or don't have long exposure, now that the VIX and volatility is falling, now they have to go back and put that exposure back on. And so I think that's what we're seeing is these types of strategies exacerbating the short-term trends in either direction. So Jesse, on that, in previous recessions, we've seen sort of initial falls and then retracements up and then further falls. Do you think we're seeing a similar thing with the recent rise here? Or do you think it was a sort of V-shaped fall and recovery just because of the nature of some of the trading strategies that we're seeing in the, you know, the pandemic and its recovery? I have to be honest, I changed my mind on this topic <laughs> regularly. <laughs> Two or three weeks ago, I was very, very bullish. I took off all of my short positions, all of my hedges, and was, for the first time in a few years, had you know was just long only. And I was very bullish because just some of the things that I, we had gotten so oversold and the, the coil had wound so tightly in terms of that over oversold that it was pretty clear that a rebound was coming. But now that we've had, you know, close to 30%, I think, upside from the lows, it feels to me like we have to, at the very least, retest those lows. If not, I think it's very likely that we're going to break below those lows in a, in a longer-term bear market. I think to think that we're going to have a V-shaped bottom here in the midst of the worst economic crisis in anyone's lifetime is very, very optimistic. Mm. Yeah, it seems optimistic, especially when you think about just how overvalued the market was before. I was reading somewhere that to get just back in line with the market's long-term median PA, I think off the US large caps, their median PA, the market had to fall about 50% from its February high. We saw it fall 30%, which was a massive fall and everyone, you know, uh, it was you know, it hurt everyone. It was big news, but that that didn't even get it in line with its median PE, let alone you know below that. And when you think about it in those terms, it just feels like you know we're we're, in, we're still in such frothy territory here. Oh yeah, I mean, what, what the Nasdaq 100 I think is flat for the year. I mean, it's, <laughs> right? It's the right now the the the, the Nasdaq 100 is not even down for the year. And and to think about that, that we we are literally in the midst of the worst economic crisis in anyone's lifetime. Probably, you know, I think Ken Rogoff has said in at least 150 years, and the Nasdaq's not down at all this year. That is. You know, as my friend Grant Williams would say, something that makes you go, hmm, <laughs> you know, it's just it's really hard to reconcile. I think that this is going to be much, much longer drawn out economic problem than, than most people, to, you know, believe everybody wants to try and put a, a letter shape on it. But I think another friend of mine, Peter Atwater, has pointed out that when we when you go through a traumatic event like this, it takes a long time to come back from it. People don't just go immediately back to life, you know, as it was. And so there's a lot of different ways that that can play out. But, you know, you also mentioned P.E. ratios. The one thing I think people don't appreciate about P.E. ratios in the, in the short run, yeah, you can look at, OK, we need to go down. I don't know. You maybe say 30, 40, 50 percent to get back to median P.E. ratios over any you know decent historical period of time. But what a lot of most people don't appreciate, I think, is that profit margins are also 
uh, at their highest levels in history. So that E is also inflated. And so if profit margins revert to their historical means, which there's been a ton of great studies about this. I, I can't remember who put it out, but John Authors wrote an interesting piece in Bloomberg about after a pandemic, you usually see uh, historically that the main, I, th I think, lesson you can kind of draw from a pandemic is that uh, labor gains at the expense of capital after on the on the backside when you when you come into recovery. And that would be a complete reversal of what has inflated profit margins over the last 30 years. We've seen corporations take a bigger and bigger slice of that profit pie and labor has taken a smaller and smaller share of it. So if that trend reverses, that means earnings are probably not going to come back to, to the, the peaks that we recently saw for a very long time. I mean, it could be a decade or two before earnings come back. So that's another important dynamic to think about. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jesse, a lot of the chat in our community at the moment, we've got a lot of new investors on their journey just coming into the market at the moment. Some perhaps who may have bought their sort of first stocks in January and are now questioning the whole idea of investing and others who are trying to figure out the, the construction of their portfolio. How would you think about if you were sort of taking a, a longer term approach early in your investing journey, how would you think about positioning a portfolio at the moment? Would you be entering the market? What sort of things would you be looking to have in that portfolio? Yeah, I mean, that, that is a, just a terrific question. I think first, to those to, to folks who are learning some painful lessons during this, I love, I can't remember, I think it was from one of the Market Wizards books, I can't remember who it was, but he talked about using losses or looking at losses as tuition in the school of trading or tuition in the school of investing. Everybody's going to have losses. If you read about any of the greatest investors of all time, Paul Tudor Jones, for example, I think went completely bust three times before he figured figured out what he was doing and, and you know and so i think for anybody to you know to come in and think i'm just going to you know put money in the markets and and have a wonderful experience without any losses is is uh you know is is pretty pollyannish but also i think you have to look at it like 
as long as you learn something from your losses and, and vow to not make the same mistake twice, you're making progress. And so I think that's that's an important way to think about it. Tuition at the School of Investing is what your losses are. But I also think it's a really, really exciting time to be looking into investing right now. For those that want to dig below the surface of the indexes, in the small cap value space, there are some incredible opportunities right now. Ben Graham has written, you know, famously wrote about what the situations he, lo- he looked for, which were called, he would call net nets, which are stocks that were essentially trading at less than half of their liquidation value. And you can find those today in the markets, especially in the small cap stuff that's outside of the major indexes. There are stocks that are trading at, you know, 25 cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar. And that uh, offers, you know, terrific risk reward. So for me, any type of long exposure I have right now is pretty heavily focused into small cap value. And then I think it's probably important to keep some dry powder because there's a really good probability that that we're going to make lower lows uh, on the indexes at some point. You know, we might test those lows weeks or months from now, but I think probably it'll be before the end of the year we'll be testing those lows, potentially making lower lows. And so you always want to have some type of dry powder. And, and the last thing you ever want to do is buy anything on margin. You want to make sure you're in a position to where you're going to be able to live to trade another day. Mm. And a lot of traders on margin will get completely wiped out. And, and that's... That's, you know, the the worst situation that you want to avoid completely. So I would say for people who aren't as adept at maybe doing that individual equity research, it's really important to be diversified outside the United States stock market, especially U.S. is one of the most expensive stock markets in the world. Emerging markets offer much greater value and then also have a significant allocation to non-financial assets or real assets, which would be, you know, real estate, precious metals, etc., yeah, we'll, Jesse, we'll get into your thoughts on some of the non-equity asset classes in a minute because we find your writing and your thinking on it very interesting and definitely worth exploring. I've got one last question on equities before we do. And this this is similarly from our community. In the last bull market, everyone seemed to be very much into index investing and ETFs. And that, that was no different in our community. They were very popular. Now, as the market falls, there's a lot of conversation around active management. And in Australia, we have listed investment companies, which I guess the analogy would be mutual funds in the US. How do you think about splitting your portfolio between passive long-term index investing and more active management to take advantage of the opportunities that this downturn presents? There's a really good case to be made for passive investing. Diversifying to prevent you from making mistakes in terms of putting too many eggs in one basket, picking the wrong stocks, all that stuff. Index funds allow you to diversify dramatically and, and really reduce that risk. Also, lowering cost is extremely important. So being able to lowering costs to just several basis points on some of these ETFs is, is a huge boon to investors, especially over the long run. I mean, if, if you can just save that, you know, 1% a year, it, it adds up in, to a huge degree. My biggest problem with index funds are the way they're constructed. I think most people don't understand that they're not only market cap weighted, but they're float adjusted market cap weighted, which is, uh, you know, to me, two, there are two problems. And, and the, the market cap weighting is its own problem problem 
in that the more popular a stock gets, the more overvalued a stock gets, the more you're going to buy it. The more the bigger bigger an allocation it becomes in your portfolio, which is kind of the exact opposite of what somebody like Warren Buffett is trying to do, focusing more on the the more undervalued securities in the markets, or at least not overpaying for securities. And I think the index, by its very nature, forces you to overpay for securities, and then those undervalued securities in the market you're systematically underweighting, and so it's designed, I guess, to be more of a momentum strategy just through its through that market cap weighting. But also the fact that it's, to me, is float-adjusted market cap weighting. Go back and look at a stock like Intel and look at, the, look at the, the performance of Intel when Andy Grove was running the company. Andy Grove owned 30% or more of the shares outstanding. And from the mid-80s to 2000, he was running the company and Intel was one of the best performing stocks you could ever want to own. During that period, the index systematically underweighted Intel by the amount Andy Grove owned. And so you would have a 30% less weighting in Intel because of the insider ownership. And then when Andy Grove retired from the company, sold all his stock in 2000, the index said, terrific, now we're going to boost our position in Intel. We're going to own a bunch more of it now that Andy Grove has sold all of his stock. And look at Intel since 2000. The performance, it's gone nowhere. It's literally made investors no money. So the index systematically underweights owner-operated companies and systematically overweights manager-operated companies. And that's the exact opposite of what I try and do as an investor, too. So I think the simplest way to fix these two problems is by just using a different type of index. And Rob Arnott is a guy I had on my podcast a couple of months ago, uh, research affiliates. He developed about 15 years ago what he calls the fundamental indexes. And it's just the same companies. We're not going to weight them by by float-adjusted market cap. We're going to weight them by sales, book value. We're going to weight them by their fundamentals. And that's that really prevents you from putting too much money into stocks that are overvalued and not enough money into stocks that are undervalued. And that same thing with you know putting too much money in manager-operated companies, not enough in owner-operated companies. It fixes all, all of these problems and still, still allows you to be passive and get a low cost. So I love the fundamental indexes. Yeah, nice one. I imagine a lot of our audience right now are pulling out their phones and playing fundamental index. <laughs> Jesse, we want to move to the, uh, I guess, the government response and central banks' response to what's happened in markets. Because as Bryce and I get deeper and deeper into financial Twitter, we we start to hit, sort of read more and more worrying things about the, uh, I guess, the consequences of you know what some of this central bank activity can lead to. You've written and thought about what massive rounds of QE are going to do to you know, the US dollar, to bond markets, to gold and other real assets. If we once again start broad, can you sort of summarize what we've seen the Fed and other reserve banks do and how you think about that action and some of the consequences that we might sort of see as a result? Sure. I mean, it's a huge subject with a lot of different moving parts, but I'll try and simplify it as much as I can. For the past, I guess, 20 or 30 years, the Fed has acted as, uh, well, they've acted as the buyer of last resort, I guess, is the way you could could look at it in the markets and trying to prop up the markets. After the crash of 87, Greenspan came in and cut interest rates to try and prop up the market. He did again after long-term capital management in 1998 and 99. We saw the NASDAQ go up 100% in one year. A lot of that was inspired by extreme monetary policy. After the dot-com bust in the, in the early 2000s, 
They dropped rates to 1%, which created the housing bubble. And after the financial crisis, we dropped interest rates to zero for, for most of the last decade. And then the, the, the Fed started buying up treasury bonds to try and lower interest rates, not just at the front end of the curve, overnight money, but start lowering interest rates on 10-year treasury notes, 30-year treasury bonds, these types of things to make mortgages lower, you know, and, um, auto loans and all these types of things have lower interest rates. But also they did it to try and push investors like, you know, buy up, I'm going to buy up your treasury bonds. And so now you're going to have cash in your account and cash yield zero. So what are you going to do with that money? And the Fed consciously did this to push people into corporate bonds and into thing, you know, equities kind of out the out the risk spectrum to try and push the prices of financial assets higher to promote a wealth effect. And this didn't create inflation in the economy, but it created inflation in the in financial assets, in stocks and bonds, and in real estate too. Because you know a lot of those things are just based on the cost of capital. When your cost of capital is zero or close to it, you can pay a very high price for these things. And the reason this didn't result in inflation in the economy is because it kind of was just relegated to the financial system. But there's a point at which the fiscal authorities, and I'm talking about the federal government, was relatively subdued during this this whole time. But but when the, the federal government starts getting into the act and start, it starts spending money hand over fist, there comes a time where the Fed is forced to not pursue their own monetary agenda anymore, but they're forced to support the fiscal agenda. And that point in time is where you transition from a, a kind of a disinflationary, a non-inflationary monetary policy to very inflationary monetary policy. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. With We, we already have trillion-dollar annual deficits, and we're going to push $3 trillion plus this year. And part of what the Fed had to start doing in the repo markets late last year was step into the treasury markets and start buying these things because I just don't think there were, were enough buyers out there in the market. And there's certainly not enough buyers for $4 trillion of new treasury issuance this year. And so a lot of what the Fed is being forced to do is to monetize a lot of, you know, all of this new debt. And, you know, that puts the Fed in a, in a very difficult position that if inflation does start to pick up, they can't raise interest rates because there's too much debt and it could create a, a debt spiral if they raise the cost of that debt too much. And they can't stop buying the bonds because that would push interest rates up too, potentially if there's not enough buyers. And so the Fed is potentially in a position where they're creating a situation where there's going to be inflation and they won't really have the tools to fight it. And so it's it's a very interesting point in time right now where I think we're transitioning from a disinflationary environment to an inflationary one. It's a very long-term dynamic. It's going to play out over years, not over weeks or months. But I, I think that's where we're at right now. So Jesse, if we do see this serious inflation that you're speaking of, as you mentioned at the start there, there's a lot of really complex parts going on and, and a lot to, un, to try and understand and unpack. But for the everyday sort of retail investor, what does it actually mean if we do start seeing, you know, I guess, hyperinflation? And how do you think about positioning your portfolio to accommodate for that? 
That's a good question. I, I don't even think we need to see hyperinflation. I think the markets, the, the markets for stocks and bonds at least, are essentially pricing in zero to one to two percent inflation for the foreseeable future for the next 30 years plus. And so you don't need to see a lot more than one or two percent inflation to see the markets react. And if inflation goes three, four, five percent, we're going to see the markets react significantly. And this is not just my thinking. I think if you look at a lot of the, the writings of a lot of the smartest people in this business. They're all kind of pointing in the same direction. They're not necessarily forecasting an inflationary environment going forward, but they're saying, I want my portfolio to be positioned such that if inflation does arise, it's not going to hurt me too badly. Ray Dalio has been writing about this. Chris Cole recently put out a paper a couple of months ago talking about this. Just a number of, of the people I respect the most in this business are looking at this at this risk and making sure they're at least protected against this. The way you do that is you think about what performs best in a disinflationary environment. That's financial assets, that's stocks and bonds. So, right, when inflation going down, that means interest rates go down, that means bond prices go up. When interest rates also go down, that probably helps equity valuations. Even though it shouldn't, that does make investors you know, more willing to pay higher valuations because if you can get you know, 2% on a treasury note, 10-year treasury note, well, you know, 3 or 4% dividend looks pretty good relative to that. So I'll pay that higher price to earnings ratio in order to get the dividend income. When you're in an inflationary environment, interest rates usually go up, which means bond prices go down and equity valuations also come down. Equities usually probably do a little bit better than bonds because a lot of companies do have some sort of pricing power, you know, consumer goods and these types of things. If, you know, your Coke, you'll be able to raise the, the, the price of your Coca-Cola regularly, hopefully to keep up with inflation. And, and that's one way equities keep pace. But as I mentioned, part of this is also you know, related to corporate Profit margins and labor share of income uh, has been a huge disinflationary force over the last 30 years. If labor starts taking back some of that share of profits, that's part of that inflation dynamic is labor cost. And so if a lot of that inflation dynamic goes to labor cost, that's going to hurt all companies across the board in terms of their profit margins. And the margins are not going to be able to keep pace. Profits won't be able to keep pace with inflation. And so that type of an environment is, is really not good for stocks or bonds. And so you really want something in the portfolio portfolio that can protect you against that type of scenario. Now, Jesse, that leads us to an asset class that you've written a lot about and thought a lot about, and that is gold and precious metals. Gold is often talked about as a good hedge in an inflationary environment. How are you thinking about gold in your portfolio at a time like this? I think gold is important to have probably in any time in your portfolio, just as a diversifier. I really, I really believe in having a portfolio of uncorrelated assets. And, and as I mentioned, Chris Cole's paper does a great job of showing the value in allocating to things that are non-correlated. And that's also part of the problem with stocks and bonds is, is I think over the last 20 years or something, they've been non-correlated. But that's actually more of a rarity. Usually, stocks and bonds have been more correlated than non-correlated. And in the inflationary environment, they become very correlated. And so, you know, a lot of these strategies that think, I own stocks and bonds, I'm diversified. Well, you're, you've been diversified if you're only looking at the past 20 years of history. If you look back before that, stocks and bonds traded together a lot of the time. And so bonds didn't really play that ballast role in the portfolio like a lot of people are, are maybe counting on them to do 
going forward, especially when you look at interest rates are at, you know, 1% now, how much, you know, the 10-year treasury note, I'm actually under one, how much more of that ballast role can they play if the stock market sells off? Yeah, they could potentially go negative, but I think you'd have to be crazy to pay, you know, to buy a negative yielding treasury note today with the amount of money printing that's going on and the likelihood of inflation being greater than two, three, four percent over the next 10 years. So I, I think that, yeah, gold normally plays an important role. It's going to play an especially important role. I think I've written it several times over the last few years. Times in your portfolio or times in history to buy gold and there's times to buy stocks and they almost never overlap. Uh, usually when it's a good time to buy stocks, it's not a good time to own gold and vice versa. And right now is a really good time to own gold and probably not a great time to own stocks. And so I would say it's, it's more important than ever probably to have significant allocation of gold. Just a, a question on the practical side of it. Obviously, there's a number of ways you can buy gold. You can obviously buy the physical stuff. You can also buy it on exchanges. There's often a distinction talked about between gold-backed things that you can buy and then just paper gold, which sort of correlates to the price. If you know everyday investors, retail investors are looking to get exposure to gold, do you have any thoughts on the best way to do that? I've been recommending this vehicle for several years now. And for the last five years, this thing's traded at a 5 6 7% discount to the gold and silver they hold in storage. It used to be called the Central Fund of Canada. Here in the United States, the symbol CEF. It was bought by Sprott maybe a year or two ago. And it's, so it's now the Sprott Physical Gold and Silver Trust. But it's essentially a closed-end mutual fund that owns gold and silver in storage. And the nice thing about one of the nice things about it was that you could buy it at a discount. I think now it maybe trades at a less than a one percent discount. But for the last five years, to me, that was a terrific sentiment signal that I could literally go buy gold and silver at a five percent discount through this closed end fund for the last several years. The nice thing since Sprott took it over is that if you own enough shares, they'll convert your shares into bullion for you. If you're worried about you know owning paper gold or, or whatnot, you can go to Sprott and say I want to convert my shares, and so there's really no risk to owning paper gold through this vehicle uh, as long as you own enough enough shares and I, I forget what that what that cutoff is but central fund of Canada or Sprott physical gold and silver trust I'm sure there's others out there but that's that's the one that I've I've used Jesse some of the I guess more hysterical people on fin Twitter are speaking about this potentially being the the decline of the US remaining as the global reserve currency and then potential rise for Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin or any other crypto at a time like this? With a lot of the, the crypto aficionados, I agree with the first half of the premise, but not the second half. I do think there's a, there's a serious risk that the dollar loses its position as reserve currency. I do think with the money printing that's going on right now and the Fed monetizing it, there's no way the dollar's not going to have another major bear market over the next several years. I think the dollar's definitely headed lower. And we've already heard rumblings from all around the world that, you know, Europe, Russia, China, they're all kind of tired of this dollar-based system and looking for alternatives, especially because we here in the U.S. have have used it unfairly in the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so in a variety of ways. And so I, I think we are headed for a change in terms of that. 
uh, in terms of uh, all those things. It, there's a lot of change coming, and I and I think that and and that's that's not I don't think that's a historic hysterical prediction. It's a historical one <laughs> that uh, throughout history we've seen massive changes, you know, very consistently every several decades. And I think we're headed for another one. Where I disagree with the crypto aficionados is I don't believe that cryptocurrencies are any form of a store of, of wealth at all. I, I just think that they don't serve that purpose. And that's my personal opinion. I think, you know, if you're looking for that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Gold has been that for 5,000 years and it's, and it's not going to change. And so I think trying to create a crypto version of gold is is trying to fix something that's not broken so jesse just on the global reserve point and the the u.s currency it potentially could be one of the biggest fundamental shifts in our investing lifetime or at least bryce and mines which you know it hasn't been that <laughs> it's long been quite I short. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think the effects of that are going to be i guess in a in you know a narrow investing sense but in a broader economic sense as well. What will the US losing its status as the global reserve currency mean for the US markets and and for the world? I think it'll be bad for investors in US equities, but that's about it. I, you look at, you know, I mean, we've gone through so many changes, right? You know, the the uh, the British Empire was the, you know, global hegemon before the United States and, you know, things haven't turned out too badly for them over the past 100 years or so since the US kind of rose up and who knows the, who the next one will be it could be China, it could be some type of a, a global currency that's created. We don't we don't know, but I think it won't be bad for for in terms of the U.S. economy or residents or anything. I think the main thing that I worry about is, as you mentioned, the U.S. stock market is probably the most overvalued stock market in the world. We also have probably the most overvalued currency in the world. You combine those two things together, and it means that investors that are too focused in U.S. equities are taking a big risk, not just in the hypervaluation of the equity market, but in the overvaluation of the currency. And so if you are not heavily weighted enough outside the US, it could be a painful reckoning coming for both the stock market and the currency. So Jesse, with everything that's going on at the moment and you know, looking outside of the US market, what's exciting you in terms of opportunities, be it in equities in another country or perhaps real assets elsewhere? Well, I do think the guys at GMO, that's Grantham, Mayor Van Otterloo, have been kind of banging the table on emerging market value for a while now. And it's it's about right now as cheap as it ever gets. And so I think that's an interesting opportunity where investors should be focused. Again, it's the that's the opposite of this other trade that I'm talking about. It's a cheap stock market and probably cheap currencies. So that's a good way to kind of diversify away from those U.S. risks I was talking about. But I think that's also kind of not wholly within my circle of competence where i'm most excited is in like i i kind of hinted out earlier is some of these small cap value stocks i'm finding stocks that were trading just a few weeks ago at like i said 20 cents on the dollar of their liquidation value you know reits that were trading at 10 cents on the dollar in terms of their net asset value things that you know they're the the types of opportunities that that only come around once every 10 years or something. And so for me, that's where I'm really excited to be finding those types of opportunities again. I'm also, to be quite honest, pretty excited to hedge that trade by shorting the large cap indexes. I think if we do get another leg down in the stock market, they're going to come for the favorites this time. You know, we saw a lot of, like you mentioned, Amazon and Netflix are at at, uh, new highs. These stocks have not been hit at all yet. 
And I think those stocks that have been the bull market favorites for the last 10, 11 you know, years are going to be the ones I'd love to use to hedge general market risk against general market risk in, in the, the small cap value stuff that I'm buying. Now, Jesse, you've mentioned a lot of famous investors or interesting financial thinkers that you've been reading and you know they've had interesting thoughts about different asset classes or the market as a whole. For people who want to you know, read some of what you're reading, what's some good places to either see what you're reading or to see what these guys are writing themselves? Well, to me, I think one of my, the most valuable things I've found in the past decade is the list of people that I follow on Twitter. I follow Chris Coles on Twitter now, Ray Dalio's on, on Twitter. I follow, I think there's 97 accounts that I follow on Twitter. It might make me sound like a social media addict, but I don't miss a single tweet <laughs> that any one of those people tweet. I'm not on Instagram or Facebook or you know any of these TikTok or anything, but Twitter for me is extremely valuable. And those 97 people provide me with an extraordinary base of information that I just ingest on a daily basis. And so to me, that's been really valuable. And it's not just the stuff that they write, but it's the stuff that they find and that, you know, that they, they share through that medium that, that is extremely valuable to me. I think if there's one thing we've learned from isolation, it's to go long TikTok. So I'm surprised you're not, uh, you're not on there, Jesse. <laughs> no, I, I'm not on there, but I've seen some of the, I don't know, the videos that are put up and they're absolutely hilarious. I've gotten a great kick out of a lot of them. <laughs> now, Jesse, we normally wrap up our interviews with three questions that we ask all our guests, but we've asked those the last two previous times you've been on the show. So we thought we would do something a bit different. At the start of each year, Alec and I do an episode on bold predictions for 2020 where we try and throw a few things out there and I guess some of the ones that we threw out are all going to be wrong given the <laughs> circumstances we're in at the moment but if you were to make a, a bold prediction as to how 2020 might end what would that be? Gosh, a bold prediction. So part of the reason why I was so bullish a few weeks ago is everybody was so negative. Twitter's also a terrific sentiment uh, signal for me that when I, you know, I, I just tweet a lot of articles. I don't even put my opinion on Twitter very much, but I just see people's reactions. And when when people were kind of making fun of you know, bearish stories on Twitter. It was kind of a pretty good signal that things were too euphoric. And, and then a few weeks ago, we saw, I was tweeting a lot of bullish information. I mean, in terms of the amount of insider buying I was seeing, I was just putting up, especially in a handful of these sectors and people were saying, oh, these insiders are idiots. And you, know, like, you could just tell the negativity was getting way too thick. And so I hesitate to say this just two or three weeks away from that negativity. But I do think, I don't know if it's even too bold of prediction, but I, th I think we're probably going to finish the year beneath those lows that we saw in mid to late March. I think we're going to break down below that before year end, embark on the next uh, leg down in this in this bear market that started. So, like I said, that's that's my current view. I don't know if that's a bold prediction, but that's where I'm I'm, I'm leaning right now. Bold enough. I definitely think that's sufficiently bold given uh, the sentiment that seems to be in the market, and you know, coming from leaders thinking that the economy is going to open up again in the you know the coming month so it'll be it'll be interesting to watch and we'll have to get you back on 
and review how the prediction went at the end of 2020, the start of 2021. Yes. Perfect. I'm, I'm not afraid of looking like an idiot at all. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Bryce and I have spent three years looking like idiots and uh, <laughs> somehow we've made a podcast out of it. <laughs> Perfect. So Jesse, we just want to really thank you for taking the time to share some of your thoughts. We're constantly reminded when we speak to you and when we read your writing or see what you're tweeting, that you have great insight and you're a, a really clear thinker about what's happening in the market. So we appreciate you taking the time to come and share some of it with us. If people want to follow you, they should definitely jump on your Twitter. Is there anything else, you know, a website or anything that people can jump on if they want to read more about you? On a weekly basis, I put out, I try and put out a blog post at thefelderreport.com. And I'm, I'm active daily on Twitter, just posting a lot of the, the best thing, things that I'm reading. So you kind of asked, you know, how can people keep up with that stuff? That's really what I use Twitter for is to kind of just share all the interesting stuff that I'm reading. So that's just at Jesse Felder. Perfect. Well, Jesse, thanks again for taking the time. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to getting you back on towards the end of the year to review your bold prediction. All right. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.